Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Because of the topic today, we're going to have to put a disclaimer at the start of this, where any opinion expressed by me or my guest are solely our own and not representative of any organization that we are even remotely associated with. Again, solely our own opinion. We're not going to talk any politics. We're going to stick to the science and try to remain as unbiased as possible. Now, that being said, we do have a very exciting guest joining us today. She's an exceptional CS undergrad at Harvard who's previously worked for Apple, IBM, and the MIT CS and AI lab in research and engineering roles. She's the founder of both Pixel Hacks and Ivy Hacks, having organized 10 hackathons so far and in the process of organizing a virtual one. She's written about machine learning in towards data science and started the publication on Medium called Fair Bytes, which we'll be talking all about today. Please welcome to the show, Catherine Yeo. Catherine, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, this is going to be great. So the first question that I always lead off with is how are you first exposed to computer science and machine learning? Yeah, that's a twofold question. I think the way I was exposed to computer science is very different to the way I entered machine learning. For computer science in middle and high school, my favorite class was English. And I still love English to this day. I love reading, writing, learning new words. But I noticed a lot of my classmates did not show the same enthusiasm, especially about this weekly homework assignment we had of learning new vocabulary words. It was maybe like we have to learn 30 words a week, get tested on it, and repeat this every week. And they thought this was a really tedious task to memorize definitions, spelling, and that when I talked to them about how they'd rather use their time, they said they would much rather play video games instead of something so tedious. And that got me thinking, what if I could build something fun to help students learn and increase their vocabulary? 
And at that time, I didn't know how to program. So I learned how to create an app. The app was named Letter Pop. It's a mobile game where you tap colorful balloons to spell out valid words for points and learn new words that way. And I prototyped it with a friend in App Inventor, which is a drag and drop editor, like very introductory for young students to learn programming. And that was really cool to have this prototype, let my friends test it. And later on, I taught myself Swift and Xcode to build out a fuller app in iOS with more complexities and features. And and for me, this whole end-to-end process was really fascinating in like identifying a problem, having a targeted audience, drawing out the design on paper before like shifting it to creating a design digitally, actually coding it up, debugging it. Really enjoyed this whole process. And I also really liked how computer science and programming let me create an impact and build something tangible, like turning my ideas into reality. So that's what got me started in in computer science. And that's how I realized I wanted to keep doing it. As for machine learning, this was a, a really lucky opportunity. In ninth grade, I stumbled across a new summer program that Stanford was hosting for high school women. Back then, it was called Sailors. And now it's called Stanford AI for All. And it was hosted by Stanford's AI lab. Very first year, very experimental. And I was really fortunate to come across it. Back then, like AI and machine learning were pretty new and seemingly untouchable to me. It's a topic you heard about, you saw in the news, but I, I didn't know anything about it. But I was very curious about how it worked, like what made computers and robots robots like intelligent like how intelligent were they what's this artificial part and i was very fortunate to have the opportunity to attend the program it was a rare chance to learn from a lot of experts and researchers in the field and that really inspired me to deepen my pursuit of both cs and machine learning and over time as i've taken more classes and done more projects across a wide range of topics in these two fields or in cs and machine learning i've been able to to hone in on more specific interests and even now i'm still exploring and learning more every day wow that's amazing that you came across this summer program in ai in just ninth grade when i was in ninth grade i was probably like a lot of your other classmates just uh trying to play video games more than I could go to school. And if that was a, if I did, that was a win. But obviously you have been very successful after doing that program. And it ties into you yourself teach a high school or teach AI and algorithmic fairness to high schoolers. Would you say that was inspired by your own experience of having gone through a program like that in high school? Yeah, definitely. I This summer in particular, some Harvard classmates and I, we realized a lot of high school summer programs in STEM were being canceled due to COVID-19. And we thought maybe we should use this time to help these high schoolers whose programs are being canceled and guide them to or in topics, in STEM topics they might be interested in. And I, I was definitely inspired by my time with Stanford AI for All, as well as my own interest in 
AI and algorithmic fairness. So I led a class, an eight-week summer class on this topic to high school students. And it was really incredible to see how quickly and how deeply they picked up on these topics on both the technical and ethical perspectives. Yeah, and there's obviously some self-selection going on here. If you're just a random high schooler, you're not taking online AI classes during the summer. But you said that you were surprised by how much, how fast they were able to grasp it. Were these kids that were, that had some exposure to CS before and they were interested in the field or what was the breakdown of how much knowledge they had going in? That's a great question. Yeah. These, the students I taught, they were, I think they were all like, between sophomores and juniors in high school. And they had a mix of experiences, more leaning on the programming side, but none of them have touched AI or machine learning before and still going through the typical math classes in high school. And it was a very like wide range of students. One student was from Russia, a rural town in Russia, And she was really excited about this topic because she had watched a TED Talk on this topic before and and was very surprised to see a a class being taught on this topic of more in depth. And and so it was was a wide ranging group of students and, and really cool to see how their own experiences and knowledge contributed. Yeah, it's crazy to me how, like you said, someone in a remote part of the world like that is able to now with the power of the internet pull themselves up by their bootstraps and learn about learn super in depth on almost any topic that yeah, they want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now diving into the topic of the day, which is all things fairness and bias in AI. If you were how do you approach that when you start talking about that to high schoolers? So if I'm a high schooler, uh, I have some experience with, I know what programming is. I've done maybe a little bit of it. How would you explain to me the problem that is algorithmic fairness? That's an excellent question. I don't think there's a right answer to this. Every researcher in this field, both on the quantitative and qualitative sides, I think would approach explaining the problem differently. How I would introduce it, especially to younger students who are, or not even younger students, just people new to this field, is I'd like to talk about how there are different demographic groups and different, like these different groups or subgroups have different unfairnesses they experience. And, And by demographic, it really could be represented by a lot of attributes. Um, and this field calls these like sensitive or protected attributes. Like it's not just like race or gender, but also like your physical geographic location, religion, like your hairstyle, a wide variety of features could be considered in what demographic group here is. <clears throat> and with these different demographic groups, it's hard to find training data that is representative, especially because data is accumulated over time. So that leads to historical biases being embedded in data. And the fact that data is also gathered and labeled by humans and humans have their own biases. So there are societal biases embedded in data as well. And it's not just data. Sometimes features can serve as proxies for others, like the relation between zip code and race is a common one. 
And so when algorithms um, are trained on data, they can learn the biases of data to have and maybe even amplify the biases in the model itself. And so that's where the bias starts. With the field of fairness in particular, we can start by thinking it from a more natural starting point of like law or philosophy, where a lot of notions of fairness, equality, justice start from and connect these ideas with what needs to happen in the algorithmic world and extend these ideas, connect them and think about like how we could perhaps think about fairness more in a quantitative way that we can quantify and create a more objective measure for. But of course, that has led to a lot of different definitions and frameworks of fairness over time. Yeah, and let's get into one of the biggest, not, I wouldn't say it's an argument, but distinctions that's made in the field between the different types of fairness, and that is individual versus group fairness. How would you explain that principle? Yeah. So individual fairness is based on the key idea that similar individuals should be treated similarly. And and that's a high level intuition seems pretty reasonable that like, why, why shouldn't similar individuals be treated similarly? And then that gets into the question of, okay, how do we define similar individuals? How do we define treated similarly? In the classification sense, it might be like just two individuals who are similar with respect to one task would be classified similarly, classified as in classified one or zero, positive or negative, you accept or reject. And that's a highly intuitive idea that has led into a lot of research into being done on like how to define the similarity between two individuals, whether with distance metrics or, and and there's a lot of distance metrics, etc. With group fairness, it's based on the idea that we want to think beyond individuals into thinking about how we can create a fairness system for different groups, subgroups, intersectional groups. So that gets a lot more complicated at that level. Within group fairness, there are a ton of different frameworks. Um, the most like simplistic one is the idea of statistical parity, where you accept or hire the same percentage of people in all the groups. So like the acceptance rate is the same across all the groups in the percentage quota system. And uh, there are problems with that, of course. So that has led to other other notions of group fairness based on like the equality of opportunity or having an equal chance of success for anyone who's hired if we continue the hiring analogy and also frameworks that are more geared towards intersectional subgroups rather than thinking about groups separated, etc. So there's a lot going on in both individual and group fairness and, and they're both definitely important to consider because you you can't just look at just one of them. And if one was, tra- say, training a model with placing one of these mathematical definitions as a constraint, is is it completely, are these two concepts of group and individual fairness, are they exclusive to each other? Are you able to optimize for only one at a time or is are you able to merge them in some way? 
they're not exclusive, but there there are trade-offs and there's also a lot of research being done into looking at the trade-offs between different types of fairness and as well as the trade-off between fairness and accuracy of models and systems. Okay. And before we get more into the weeds of the actual math behind this, can you just give an overview of how big an issue this is? What could happen if this is not something that's addressed? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It is a big issue, especially with more machine learning and AI models being deployed in our daily world today. We see that facial recognition, for example, is a very common feature in our daily lives. Um, There are machine learning models being used in much more like life impacting events from granting parole to deciding who gets bank loans, etc. So with how widely deployed machine learning is as it continues, as its usage continues to grow, it's pretty important to consider these issues of potential bias and harm and try to mitigate such cases. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's these real world applications that are really essential to get, especially when you have the output of or the the outcome of that decision, when that's being later fed into the same model to train it even further and you end up just self-reinforcing a lot of these biases. Yeah. And one example that I thought was extremely interesting for where this could have an effect was mentioned by, uh, in a conversation on Hidden Forces, which is a podcast that I particularly like. And he was saying that now we have more dating apps making matches than we do for from coming from your friends. And so if that algorithm is a black box and has no bias or, or no fairness built into it, no notion of oversight, that's literally shaping the genetics of the future. Oh, that's uh, really interesting and, and very true. I had not thought about that particular application. Yeah. And that, so of course the cycle's life, that's like the ultimate feedback loop and even algorithms even today are now the majority of making those decisions. Yeah. And during COVID, some education systems started using AI algorithms to make decisions like the IB testing system because they could, and I think the A-levels as well, because they didn't hold their final exams due to the pandemic. They decided to create an algorithm to predict student scores on what they could have gotten on the exam and, and create this overall score based on a lot of factors, including factors like the success of previous alumni at your school, etc. And it was very much a black box. No one knew how this algorithm worked and a lot of students could not go to the colleges they wanted to because their predictive score was much lower than they expected. Wow. Yeah, it's not so nice to be on the end of an algorithm that says, no, you're not going to succeed at this college. Mm-hmm. Seems, at least from a human to human point of view, that's a very unideal outcome, to say the least. Right. And I really want to highlight, or I guess I'll say that Before I read more, a lot of this fairness research and all the use cases for it, I was very much of the mind of, I haven't really looked into this before. I 
don't know how big of a problem this is. But once you start digging into it, there are some really important use cases where if we get this wrong, it's really bad. It's not just the news AI generated news articles are going to have a gender bias. It's hospitals are using machine learning to triage patients during emergencies. And if you have a bias against a certain population, they're literally going to die because of this. So crazy to think about the potential impact of just one use case or one model. Exactly. So I would implore all our listeners to, there'll be a link in the description of this where Catherine has an excellent post on all these resources to look up and dive into. That'll keep you busy for a while. And I implore all of you to go visit this and read all about it because it is very important. And we're getting to solutions towards the end of this episode. But at this point, we'll just say that most of them are on the individual level. Although, as we'll see, it might not necessarily be the optimal solution. And moving on to, or going back into some of the nitty-gritty details, machine learning is centrally based on the concept of you have data that you want to learn from, and if that data has bias in it, how is it even possible to extract that bias and have a model that isn't biased? That's a great question. Because it's not possible to create a completely unbiased data set. That's just physically not possible in the sense that like, how do you define what an unbiased data set is? You can't, you don't really have a way of making it fully representative. It is definitely possible to make less biased data sets than others. But there are a lot of considerations into how to learn without bias. You could consider mitigating the bias in either the pre-processing, in-processing, or post-processing steps, which is like before you run the algorithm, during the algorithm, or after you have ran the algorithm and get results. A lot of research has focused on the post-processing side where you have the results run from the model and you look at how to mitigate the bias and handle the on the results directly. And there's been some really cool work in, in doing that. And the, oftentimes they're called de-biasing algorithms, although I'm not sure if that naming is the best in that it's not really de-biasing, like removing the bias, but more of mitigating the bias in later stages. And could you give an example of, or a high-level overview of how one of these de-biasing algorithms would work? There's a really great and groundbreaking research paper in the NLP fairness world from 2016. The paper is called Man is to Programmer as Woman is to Homemaker. And what it found was that if you look at the distance between words on projected on word embedding subspaces in in thinking about gender dimensions, and that paper looked at binary gender dimensions, the distance between like man and programmer is similar to the distance between like woman and homemaker. And then you can more of these similar analogies that exhibited stereotypical gender biases. And they realized that they could 
mitigate the bias in a post-processing stage by manipulating how we're projecting the words onto the subspace and we can neutralize a lot of words, remove the bias or remove the stereotypes exerted on it by neutralizing them. And then the scores are mu- exhibit m- uh, much less biased scores in, in that sense. Yeah, that's a really cool paper and a really beautiful concept that you're able to, in vector space, define, as I understand it, you, they define a direction of where the bias is and then are able to correct for it in the subspace that they project onto later. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible to me that we're able to to actually def- literally define mathematically from these word vectors what what the direction of the bias is. It just strikes me as a something that's really cool. Uh, I guess the inner nerd in me is. Yeah, and I think a, a, a super interesting part of of this project, at least this was one of the first papers I read that got into such debiasing algorithms and ideas is that previously it's society that influences the way technology works. Like these societal biases and opinions get embedded into the data that our algorithms are run on. Now with these debiasing algorithms, we can potentially change the way that like the outputs that originally had higher bias, we can create systems, whether it's with these word embeddings or other types of use cases and machine learning models and systems, we can have an output that is less biased and inject it back into society for people to use or be impacted by. And so in a sense, we're reverting the direction of society impacting technology to technology impacting how society can think in, in that way in a less biased sense. Wow, that's extremely interesting. How would you how would you imagine that working? Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, but what would that look like? Yeah, I think this was just a, a really like abstract takeaway I had from that paper in the sense that uh, like these word embeddings have we now have a way of mi- mitigating the bias in them. So if depending on how people are using word embeddings for future models or future like writing, learning, etc. It could be, and, and depending on what are the outputs of those future use cases, when they are fed back for people to use or be used by, it's less biased than what society originally injected into the training data. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. I I don't know this is going to be technically possible, but uh, it seems like this is a direction that could be possible mm-hmm. where you have, if you're a writer and you write something, some journal article, you run it through spell check, and then you would also run it through bias check, where it sees places where you could potentially de-bias, I guess, your own your own article or something like that. Yeah, that would be really interesting. and And then that would also get into like, how we define the biases. And you've used, or I know that you've done your own research into specifically bias as it pertains to 
natural language and cited this seminal seminal 2016 paper. Can you talk about a little bit about the research that you've done? Yeah. So a friend and I worked on a project. We were very inspired by this paper and we're both very interested in writing. And so we were playing around with the GPT-2, OpenAI's GPT-2 language model, where we could feed in prompts and GPT-2 would finish the prompts for us by like writing sentences or paragraphs. And we were comparing different prompts with genders, the man works as and the woman works as. And we realized that often for the man works as, GPT-2 generated like a wide variety of occupations. The man works as a salesman, teacher, construction worker. Like it, it produced a very diverse range of occupations. But for the woman works as, or the or the woman has a job as, it, the language generation model would create or would generate words like the woman works as a stripper, as a prostitute. And we saw this disturbing pattern. We wanted to look more into it with these defined algorithmic fairness frameworks. So we extended some ideas from individual fairness into calculating the scores of bias using the ideas from the 2016 paper. And we ran this on both GPT-2 and ExcelNet to find that, yes, there was greater magnitudes of bias in the female-related prompts and what occupation was they generated. And this was quite interesting. Like During our project, as we were working on it, OpenAI released GPT-3, and their very extensive paper had a whole section on fairness and bias. And they acknowledged that GPT-3 had issues of bias when they ran different tests, prompt tests on gender, race, religion. And hopefully they wanted to inspire more researchers to look into how to mitigate the bias in language models. Yeah, it strikes me that the GPT-3 paper having that bias section is a good sign for the field in general uh, of acknowledging that this bias, it's not like they said, oh, it's, we have this amazing model and there's no biases whatsoever. Use it. <laughs> they said, there are definitely problems with this model that need to be looked into and we know we're not perfect, but we're working on it. Yeah, I agree. I, I really appreciate more and more papers having a section on fairness and bias or like potential ethical impact and harms. Google has created this idea of model cards where you write about such things about the machine learning model you're creating. And I think IBM also has a method of fact sheets that there are more ways when you write and present new research to also consider these potential consequences and impact and also inspire future researchers to think about these aspects in their own research. By model card, do you mean it's like a, a baseball card with some information about the model? Yeah. Okay. Could you explain? I, this is something I haven't heard of, but uh, can you explain what, what's on this and how it could be helpful? Yeah. The model cards and, and fact sheets, essentially, they, they sum up and describe the, the model, the, the data it was trained on, what it's outputting, 
and potential like ethical and um, societal consequences of the model's use cases. And I think I might not be capturing all the specifics right now, but it's a really both the model cars, fact sheets, and, and probably there are other similar methods out there. But I've seen a lot used in these two forms. They've been really good in capturing new research that have potential negative consequences in the model's use cases. Going back to that research paper that you had done with one of your friends, it's very interesting to think about how exactly you would define or how exactly you'd set up the experiment. So you said that you had prompts given to these models for them to complete. How are you from that measuring how biased they actually are? If you can give some mathematical intuition on how that works. Yeah, we created eight prompts for male and four for female. We are only using binary gender here because when we tried non-binary terms like they work as the GPT-2 and also we use Google's ExcelNet, these language models recognize words like non-binary pronouns like they as a plural word. So they would just generate things like they work as a team, which didn't quite apply similarly as the occupations we had for um, man and woman or she and he. So we created these eight gender-specific prompts like he has a job as, he works as, etc. And we ran these prompts on a lot of ex- just random, just kept generating different prompts. We extracted the profession generated by the language model and we would calculate the bias using the idea of the distance and the gender subspace from the 2016 paper. And we would average it over all the examples we generated and found that the, the average bias in magnitude for male prompts, the bias was quite low, which meant that the occupations generated for male prompts was very widespread. It could be like more male leaning, it could be female leaning, it could be more neutral. But for the female prompts, the bias was, the magnitude of bias was very big, which implied that a lot of the professions generated for female prompts were very female leaning, like nanny, prostitute, stripper, caretaker, etc. So what is the... When you have that, you have a, some sort of number for the bias on uh, male prompts and bias on female prompts. What's the, I guess, what is that number? Like, is there some concept that you can map it to in terms of, like, if the number is 10 times the male, uh, the female is 10 times the male, does it mean it's 10 times as biased? How do you think about that? Yeah, pretty much exactly like that. Our scores were within a range of negative one to one, with the two ends of the spectrum being like female leaning or female stereotypical and and male stereotypical. And it was around the 10x range in, in terms of bias difference. And that was in both of the models you tested? Yes. 
both models exhibited very similar results. Okay, and as a follow-on experiment, I know you tested with the de-biased embeddings as well. How did that go? With the de-biased embeddings, the results were much less extreme, but still the bias for female prompts exceeded the bias for male prompts. And I know that the de-biasing process has two ways of going about it. There's one where you can tune the parameter and there's one where it's, uh, quote, fully de-biased. Which one were you testing on? We were testing on the fully de-biased version. Oh, interesting. And that still had, still resulted in significant differences. Yeah. And by then it wouldn't be on like, that meant that it would be less related to the issue of the word embeddings bias itself and more on what the language model is doing. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so now to move on to some of the possible ways of mitigating this. First off, what do you, do you think that the field is going in a more positive direction? Do we think we need to accelerate even more into research efforts? What do you view as the state of this research? I think this field is still very much a work in progress. I'm really excited about a lot of current directions that are intersecting, not just like mathematical and statistical thinking, but also with ethicists, policymakers, human AI interaction, researchers, just overall an intersection of ideas across a lot of fields and not just restricted to math or statistics or computer science, but also to a lot of humanities fields, qualitative thinking and applications or related fields, like I mentioned earlier, like law, philosophy and economics. So I'm, I think keeping up this intersectional thinking and collaboration is really important in the state of fairness research. It's important to not just silo to one side, be like, oh, computer scientists should only think about this way and philosophers should only think about it this way, but instead to promote cross-collaboration. Yeah, exactly. We definitely need uh, not only demographic diversity, but also psychographic diversity in terms of different backgrounds contributing. So you talked about lawmakers, policies, and then earlier in the episode, we mentioned possible solutions on the individual level. What if, in your current thinking right now, obviously it's a fast moving field, at what level do you think an intervention should occur because obviously we've talked about earlier that this is a huge problem and it does strike me that something should be done to pose it to you should something be done and where should the intervention happen that's a tough question because it's a very hard balance whether it's for recent or especially for industry deployed applications it's a very hard balance of i want to push out this cutting edge, groundbreaking machine learning technology that could potentially be beneficial to people in these ways. But also, we haven't fully tested it for issues of bias and fairness. We haven't tried it on like different demographic groups. So the balance is, is or the line is between like advancing technology to potentially help more people and also rushing to push out products 
that could potentially have harmful consequences or issues of bias that were not in the consideration process when you originally started creating and, and developing the products. So I personally, I like for each recent AI product that has faced issues of bias and fairness, I, I personally have thought like the, the stage of intervention could be very different for each product. So it's really hard to give a one size fits all answer to this. You've seen like this year, a few months ago, IBM, Microsoft stopped their facial recognition research systems because of how when because of these issues of bias in facial recognition systems existing and, and still being really big issues of not being able to be mitigated, but these these systems are being used in law enforcement systems. So they have really big impact. And it, of course, facial recognition has a lot of benefits, like a ton of people use Face ID in their iOS devices. But so it's a, it strikes as a unclear balance, at least for me. I'm sure others have, have different ideas on when to push out a product to advance technology and see where this direction goes versus let's test this more for issues of bias because it's great and we definitely need to look for issues of bias, fairness, and see how it impacts different demographic groups. But also it could really slow down the process if it takes a long time and hopefully the research in this field is helping on this issue of when to intervene and how to speed up the process or what considerations should industry engineers, designers, product managers think about when creating ethical products in mind. Mm, that's a really good detailed answer. And it's so important, I think, to acknowledge the, just the fact that there are going to be these trade-offs between how fair a model is and how accurate it is. In the case of the Gender Shades uh, paper specifically, which is the, the one that exposed these facial recognition systems having such egregious inaccuracies on certain intersectional groups. Mm -hmm. And just to highlight some of that result, the maximum deviation between groups was over 35 percent as an absolute number so that just gives you an idea of how bad <laughs> these these systems were when but and especially given that they're used by law enforcement we're seeing that facial recognition is obviously more of a hot button button issue recently in the case of those types of systems obviously it's hard to give recommendations at the broader level because of how disparate these models or how disparate the problems that they are solving, how desperate the problems of these models are. But what can individuals do? Say you're a practitioner like myself. What, what's something that we should do in order to potentially reduce the harms caused by this? I think as machine learning practitioners, whether you're a researcher or a 
industry engineer or working on your own projects, just getting into this field, I think it's really imperative that while we're working on something related to machine learning, that we consider questions and aspects like who is being affected by the algorithm we're writing or who designed and created these algorithms that we're using. How do these algorithms impact pop all populations and subgroups? And overall, like how can we design and create AI that is transparent, accountable, and fair? I think it's really important to keep these ethical considerations in mind. And of course, each question is a huge question in itself. In like how how do we do this? Who are we thinking about? So as practitioners, I highly I really encourage and suggest for you to keep these considerations in mind as you go forward in your work, your projects, and your learning. Yeah, and of course, uh, not just taking it on individually in terms of uh, learning about it yourself, but it strikes me that in my own research on this topic of having gone to knowing very little about it to reading a lot of these papers, there's an element of moral luck if I was working on some more impactful project I could easily very easily have been enacting major harms on uh, the potential end users or their or other folks but spreading the knowledge of this seems also to be an extremely important thing and you've done a lot of this work you've taken it upon yourself to actually start a medium publication called Fair Bites when did how did you get the idea for that uh and what's your experience been like writing about this yeah i started fair bites in may as a publication to share short bite-sized pieces if you will highlighting research resources and issues overall related to ai fairness and ethics and i i started it because i realized there was so much of related to these topics that I was not aware of until I started really diving into it. There's a lot that just, even though I was already a student in computer science and machine learning, there was so much I didn't know about. And my goal in creating Fairbytes is to create more awareness and introduce the public to this emerging field through short, understandable articles written from technical, societal, and educational perspectives. A lot of these, this, a lot of the knowledge is, seems to be restricted to very in-depth, technical, long papers that are not really accessible to the general public. Like as an industry engineer, like maybe I would take the time to go and look for these t- papers or, or issues and learn more but it's, it's not really accessible and to broad audiences so that's why i wanted to create something that was that allowed for more explainable easy to understand writing and, and learning and overall the response has been really positive i got a lot of comments from people ranging from machine learning practitioners to just non-technical people readers and they were like, whoa, I did not know this was a thing. This is really good that you brought my attention to it. 
And some people have personally reached out to me saying that these articles have inspired their interest in learning more about AI fairness and ethics, which I'm really excited and glad to hear about. Some of the articles in Fairbytes have been translated into other languages by AI publications in other countries who reached out to me. So I'm really happy that more people and even like across language barriers can access and learn about these ideas and topics. I really liked what you said about how technical some of these papers are. One of the ones that I had found on Archive was was on uh, fair representation learning with variational autoencoders. And I just start scrolling through this and half of it is equations uh, and there's no pictures. So <laughs> for me, this was uh, this was much harder to parse through. Yeah. And I can't even imagine being uh, a layperson and trying to read some of the research on this field with the gender shades paper. You can understand it pretty much immediately, but some of these, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, Gender Shades has a really good website that like walks you through what they did with data visualizations and high-level tidbits plus images. But a lot of these papers, like without such effort to create something understandable or visualizing or so visual, a lot of these papers are really like, like when I read them, I want a TLDR for the abstract. So my goal and mission with Fairbytes is to write about a lot of research and not just research, but compile resources for people who want to learn more and introduce them to these ongoing advancements and issues. I think it's really great that you're doing this, especially given if we go full circle back to what you said at the beginning about how your first major of interest was in English. And there's such a need for lay people uh, and maybe even just programmers in general who aren't, who don't know the lingo of the field to understand these things. I find that a lot of technical writing is not great, shall we say, where you're very much trying to get the concept underneath the writing doesn't really give it to you. But what I find with your Fairbytes articles, they're very short, they're very succinct, uh, and you can get the idea, the big idea almost immediately. You do a very good job of that. Thank you. And to just give the URL to our listeners, where can they find that? Yes, you can find Fair Bytes on fairbytes.org, where bytes is with a Y. Yep, computer bytes, people, <laughs> not, not cookies. But speaking of cookies, there was a great paper that you had, or a great article that you wrote about machine learning's obsession with uh, kids' TV show characters. And this was extremely amusing to me, especially since. I never actually noticed this. <laughs> Somehow, I will just look at the BERT paper and think, okay, yeah, that's the acronym. Look at ELMO. Okay, yeah, it's just the acronym. And then when I was reading this one, it's like, oh my God, there's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, that was a really fun article for me to write. I, I published it in Towards Data Science and I got a lot of amusing comments and responses from people who also didn't notice this trend. Yeah, I think I I started like, especially in the NLP world, it started with ELMO, which is for stands for embeddings from language models. 
And this was from researchers at the Allen Institute. And I think the lead author said ELMO, this acronym stuck as this like whimsical but memorable choice in, in what to name their model. And Google paid homage to the Sesame Street character by following it up next year with an advancement called BERT. And after that, there were so many more. There's multiple versions of Ernie, Kermit. This year, there's a new Facebook AI created Marge Simpson. (laughs) They've previously created Bart, like Bart Simpson. I think after this article got published, there was a new one called Big Bird that I haven't looked into yet, but (laughs) I I saw it and I was like, oh, the trend continues, which is so cool. Found, Found this trend really cool and it's, it's really fun and, and people, it's really cool how people, researchers pay homage to previous researchers in this funny, harmless way. Yeah, yeah. It, like I said, it's an extremely amusing article, so I'll link that down below as well. And to start to wrap up, is there anything that I haven't hit on that you would like to convey to our listeners? I think that's all about it it's, yeah. awesome so to finish up with some rapid fire questions these are just the questions that are rapid fire your answers don't necessarily need to be first of all what's a use case for machine learning that you think is underrated or underexploited Ooh. I don't know if this is necessarily underrated or underexploited, but one use case for machine learning that I personally really want is assisting with idea generation, whether it's like writing ideas or, or it's like startup ideas, product ideas. I, I don't think machine learning can fully replace organic processes like writing a full story from start to end or creating a company from the ground up. But it would be great if machine learning could help me like brainstorm ideas or something about characters in this writing process. I, I would definitely love to use it. It's funny, actually, a few months ago, I was thinking exactly along those same lines. Have you ever heard of a Zwicky box? No, what is that? I think that's what it's called. Hold on, give me one second. Wow, I can't believe I got that right. Yeah, it's called a Zwicky box, but you should definitely look it up. There's a Super Organizers article about it. It's basically... Uh, you just have a bunch of categories and it's not machine learning based, but it's uh, really good for generating ideas. And I think they're actually, you actually could make a machine learning assisted version of one of these. So I had, uh, I had that written in one of my random notes. That's so cool. <laughs> so if you, if you had a side project uh, or time for a side project, you could probably do something like that. <laughs> Next. If you could time travel back to when you first started programming or learning machine learning, whatever your choice, what would you say to yourself? What advice would you give yourself? I would tell myself to keep an open mind to learn more, to never stop learning and never stop reading. In the last five years alone, machine learning, NLP, AI fairness, and a lot of subfields under AI, honestly, have just massively blossomed. In NLP, for example, if you're just out of the loop for one month, you miss a lot of groundbreaking research that is happening. Same thing with AI fairness. There's so much ongoing. The field of interpretability keeps growing like insanely much. So 
I, I would tell myself to to never stop learning, reading, and and be resourceful in in how to keep up learning. Yeah, exactly. And I can't echo that sentiment more. Really, just four years ago, I was doing my first internship at a startup where the state of the art was <laughs> using a CNN on word embeddings. Yeah, that was like the best that existed. <laughs> And now look where we are now. But back then we were just trying to get uh, sentiment analysis at greater than 90%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy how, how quickly research has advanced. And moving on, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Could be technical or non-technical. Ooh, I'll balance out this interview with a non-technical recommendation. I really like The Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu. It's an incredible collection of short stories, sci-fi and fantasy. The writing and prose are stunning, but beyond that, every time I finish one of the stories, I just sit there, pause and think, really think to myself, like, what just happened in that story? And a, a lot of them also relate to technology. So it's really interesting for me to read about. Ken Liu, the author, he actually started out as a programmer and then he went to law school, became a lawyer, and then became a full-time writer. And his own journey wow. has been really <laughs> incredible. And it has inspired a lot of his own writing. And you can see the, how interesting his experiences are in his ideas and writing. So some of the stories have really struck me and, and lingered with me for a long time. So I highly recommend his collection called The Paper Menagerie. He also has a lot of novels and series as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by authors who have the interesting backgrounds like that. How many people are, how many people have a similar background like that? He's really the only one and you, or at least the one who's doing a lot of really good writing. So it's, uh, there's, it's quite literally, there's no one, no one doing it like him. So the second to last question will be, how do you recharge outside of work? I like to swim. It's been harder to swim in these COVID times, but I've, I've still been able to go a few times. When I swim, it feels like I'm immersed in another world. I can think about something else while I swim. I could also think about nothing and just focus on swimming. It brings this new sense of peace and quiet that I really like. Hmm. Yeah, there's something about while you're swimming, the the water in your ears. I know some people don't like it at the end, but while you're in the water, yeah, you just hear things going on in your own body. It's yeah. just And then next, or lastly, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Very iconic question. Very hard to answer. I think more recently, one thing I've been thinking about is that since the transition to virtual schooling in the pandemic, a lot of students have said that online classes aren't real classes. I watched not only my own classmates, but students all across the country react to this development with dismay and despair. There's this huge Facebook group called Zoom Memes for Quarantines, which centers on memes around like quarantine, COVID-19, but a lot around like online schooling. And a negative sentiment seems to be the common feeling towards online classes. Prior to COVID-19, I like way before, 
I had actually attended a fully online high school for my last two years of high school. So I did like intense virtual seminar discussions, frog dissections performed at home. So with these experiences, my learning was still pretty structured and fast paced. And I'm still super grateful for the fundamental skills I developed as a student in online school and all the classmates I met there, all my teachers. Sure, there was a a format difference, but I felt that my high school managed to instill and maintain rigorous academics for all of us. I do acknowledge that there are a lot of issues with remote education overall, not just classes, like, but with remote education as a whole. When it's suddenly blasted to such a large scale, like there are issues of mental health resources, inequitable access to technology and Wi-Fi, very different home learning environments. It is true that there are a lot of issues and I'm hopeful in our community and schools to brainstorm and develop solutions around them over time. However, I believe that when done right, online classes alone with a focus on interaction and engagement can still be really effective as a form of schooling. So that would be my answer to this question. That's such a good answer, I think, because personally, I would say I've learned more from taking online classes than I have in-person ones. And I, the only one I think couldn't have done been done online is public speaking. But obviously, we are seeing that being done online now. So obviously, I was wrong on that. But I think people are definitely realizing that the reverse classroom might be uh, the way to go, where you have personalized help from the professors and TAs during class, and then you just watch their lecture videos at 2x speed outside of class. And finally, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Medium on Twitter at catyo18. And a lot of the resources I have are on my website, katherineyo.tech. And you can check out as well as if you'd like to contribute to FairBytes, fairbytes.org. Awesome. And like I said earlier, I highly encourage all of our listeners to check out FairBytes and to really share it with your coworkers and and maybe your non-technical people too. It's it really is an interesting field to dive into even if you're not even if you're not a technical person, just the thinking about how the future will unfold and the ethical implications of that is fascinating, at least to people like us. But anyway, this has been really wonderful. And I want to thank you again for joining me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Charlie. Really grateful for for you inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.